0: One of the reasons Jesus was such a successful and captivating teacher was his use of word pictures. He quite often took these abstract truths and made them clear and understandable by employing metaphors and word pictures. So, for example, how are we to understand the relationship between Christ and his people? Well, he taught it's, it's kind of like a shepherd and his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. We are the sheep. In John 10, Jesus fleshed out this analogy to teach us some things. We learn that Jesus knows his sheep intimately and calls them by name. We learn that he cares for his sheep deeply and will even lay down his life for them. And we learn that Jesus will lead his sheep to eternal safety. In addition, this analogy Jesus made is not only helpful in, in aiding us to get to know Jesus, but it also helps us that we might learn how we are to follow him. And be like him. Because Jesus calls some of his sheep to serve as under shepherds. The word pastor in Greek simply means shepherd after all. And God calls certain men into his sheepfold to serve him by shepherding the flock. And we are told to look to Jesus to do this. What's a shepherd to do? How is a shepherd to function? Well, this analogy of of Christ being the good shepherd is meant to instruct us. And just as Jesus knows, leads, feeds, and protects his sheep, well, that's what we're supposed to do as well. You've heard it said that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, when it comes to effectively communicating truth and teaching people how to follow Jesus, a word picture is worth a thousand words as well. And so from a shepherd and his sheep to a vine and its branches to a body and its head, We're given all these analogies in scripture that teach us something different, but very important about how to follow Jesus. The same goes for the analogy we find in in our passage today, and it's that of fishermen. You find this in Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. Take your Bibles, open them there now for our passage this morning. It's a short episode, but it may be familiar to many of you, where Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, And he sees several men fishing and he calls them to follow him. But he has an objective in mind because thereafter he says, and I will make you fishers of men. And these fishermen are to turn into fishers of men. This is the least developed analogy Jesus made because he didn't give it in the context of teaching. He just gave it in the context of calling some disciples, but it doesn't honestly require much explaining because it's, It's so simple and a simple word picture is worth a thousand words. Just the image of a fisherman fishing for, for people already tells us quite a bit about what it means to follow Jesus and what Jesus expects of these disciples regarding these disciples. It was not going to be enough for them to follow Jesus. Rather the Lord was, was going to call them to join him in this work of making disciples these men had themselves been caught in the net of Christ's divine calling. And over time, the Lord would use his power to transform them and turn them into net casters as well. This is true of these first four fishermen turned disciples, turned apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But scripture goes on to teach that this is simply a part of all discipleship. There's no class of Christians or disciples or followers of Christ who are exempt from fishing, fishing for men. Rather, the Lord's design for his church is that all who repent and believe in him would themselves grow, grow up, and turn around and call others to likewise repent and believe in him. The only question is whether or not you're living up to your calling and choosing. There's more to be said here. There's more to learn here. And Christians today, I I believe, need to be frequently reminded and exhorted that the Lord has called them. And one of the main reasons he's called them as his disciples and left them here on earth is that they might later partake of of his work of calling others to go and make disciples. So we need to ponder a passage like this and its application. Let's start by reading this, this little passage of Christ calling his first disciples. Matthew four eighteen through 22. Follow along and, and you'll see what I mean. Matthew four eighteen It says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Matthew, in his gospel, spends a little extra time exploring the birth of Jesus After that, he jumps straight to the adulthood of Jesus, specifically his baptism by John the Baptist. And that marks the beginning of Christ's overall messianic ministry. After that, Matthew makes another jump about one year later to the arrest of John the Baptist. And Matthew puts his focus here because this is when the public ministry of Jesus really heats up. It's when Jesus starts putting his power on display That's where we are here in this text. Jesus is at the very outset of his Galilean ministry. Just like we learned last time, if you go back to verse 12, just to set the stage. it says, now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so Jesus is now in the city of Capernaum and he's going to spend a lot of time there basically becomes his new headquarters. He's preparing to launch a, a wider outreach mission to this Galilean region. But his first order of business is to call some disciples. Now, these disciples are not just helpers or servants. Politicians today, when they run a campaign, they will call interns and staff, but they're just a means to an end. It's to get them into office. They're, they're being used. But not Jesus. He's he's looking for a few good men who will continue this work when he's gone. It will take a lot of time and training and gifting to get them there. But you got to start somewhere. And this is the start. So what I want to do is just walk you through this passage, explaining as we go, just first build a right understanding of Christ calling his disciples, and then we'll be able to, to truly reflect on the implications for our discipleship today because there are, there are many. I'll give an outline just to help you follow along. Let's begin with number one the setting. Just the setting. Set the stage, take a better look at the setting, and the setting is the Sea of Galilee. Like it says in verse 18 as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. That's where he's going to call these disciples. The Sea of Galilee is the backdrop to much of Christ's ministry. This is where Jesus will still the storm. This is where Jesus will walk on water. And very soon we're going to see him teach the Sermon on the Mount, his greatest sermon ever. And in the backdrop would have been the Sea of Galilee. A lot goes on here. It's sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias or Lake Gennesaret. Located about 60 miles north of Jerusalem, it feeds the Jordan River. Now, every time I look at the Sea of Galilee on a map, personally, I just can't help but think of Lake Tahoe. Because they're almost identical in their shape and their outline, although Tahoe is a little bit larger. and We know Tahoe very well. Now, obviously, Galilee is not an alpine lake surrounded by pine trees, But just thinking of it helps me get a little bit of a sense of what it would have been like to to walk around this lake, to navigate this lake, its basic dimensions. Climate-wise, Galilee was a bit different than Tahoe. Tahoe, if you don't know, Lake Tahoe is 6,000 feet above sea level, but the Sea of Galilee was 680 feet below sea level. It's basically a, a catch basin surrounded by hills and mountains. The land all around the Sea of Galilee, though, was known for being extremely fertile. It it was described as being everywhere tilled and everywhere productive. The Sea of Galilee was also known for being an excellent drinking lake. The water was clear and sweet. It was said to surpass any spring. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if they had their own version of the bumper sticker, you know, keep Galilee blue. being such an excellent water source, it naturally attracted a lot of people over the years. The city was surrounded, or the sea was surrounded by uh, at least nine larger cities with uh, at least 15,000 people in each of them. Plus many, many more smaller villages. It was densely populated. But it wasn't just the water that drew all these people. It was also the fish. It, this, this lake was teeming with fish and fishing was the major industry in Galilee. Some of the fish was even exported far and wide. Every town seemed to have had a little port with busy fishermen. And one of those towns around the lake that had a, a big bustling port was Capernaum. And as we learned, this is where Jesus is now where he's going to set up shop for a couple years. Capernaum is it's on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's right on the lake. This is where Peter, Andrew, James, and John were living. They used to live in Bethsaida, which is a few miles north, but they had recently moved to Capernaum, probably for better fishing opportunities. It's right on the lake. A lot of business, trade, and travel went through Capernaum. It was a commerce hub in the region. This explains why it had a tax office which in a little while we will run into Matthew. Jesus calls this tax collector, Matthew, from Capernaum to follow him. It also housed a military garrison, which is why later we'll see a Roman centurion from Capernaum come up to Jesus, seeking healing for his servant. Capernaum will see plenty more where that came from. Many of Christ's great miracles and teaching times came in Capernaum. We'll see that later. But in all, this was a perfect place from which to launch a regional outreach ministry. And It's probably why Jesus came here to set up his new headquarters. But there's more to it than that because Jesus seems to know that this is a good place to find some disciples. In our text, he's down by the shore. He's walking by the lake. But this is not just a casual stroll. He seems to be on a mission. That he knows where he's going and what he's going to do. And that mission was to call certain men, specific select men, by name to follow him. This, with this, we're introduced to number two, the fishermen. Number two, the fishermen. And starting in verse 18 again, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea For they were fishermen. So we're first introduced to a pair of brothers, Peter and Andrew. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but you just don't want to drag the boat into the lake. Just fish from shore. And so that's what they were doing. They were shore fishing with a net. Why? Well, they were fishermen. This was their trade. We see first Peter, whose original name was Simon. Jesus renamed him to Peter, which means rock. Peter was no doubt the leader of the twelve. And in every list of the disciples, you find Peter's name always comes first. He was their spokesman, which makes perfect sense because he was the most outspoken among them. Peter was really all in on this whole following Jesus thing. Later, it's Peter who gets out of the boat and walks on water to go to Jesus. And later, it's also Peter who once again jumps out of the boat and swims to shore to go greet Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus greeted them from the shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably the same place where he's calling them here. And the other disciples row the boat into shore, but Peter just jumps out, gets in, swims to shore. He just can't wait to be with Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, that's where Peter wants to be. So it's not surprising to find that Peter was the first disciple to fully confess the true identity of Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a pivotal passage we'll see later in Matthew 16 becomes the confession of the church. But it's not like Peter had it all together at this point because uh, immediately after he confesses Christ, Peter's the one who then rebukes Jesus for saying he has to go die on a cross. And when the time of the cross comes, Peter's the one who vehemently denies even knowing Jesus three times. Peter was a man of passion, but also weakness. But still, the Lord would use him. Peter would be fully restored in his faith, and the Savior would transform his weakness into strength. And Peter would be the leader of the early church. Now, standing next to Peter was always his brother, Andrew. Andrew was actually the one who uh, called Peter first, or who introduced Peter to the Lord first. We'll see that in a little bit. But Andrew mostly gets overshadowed by his brother. But Andrew still played a prominent role. Peter was the leader. Andrew wasn't the follower. Andrew was the bringer. So Whenever we see Andrew in the Gospels, he's always bringing someone to Jesus. This is what he does. Andrew was the one who brought his brother Peter to Jesus first. Also, at the feeding of the 5,000, There's a boy with five loaves and two fish. It's Andrew who brings him to Jesus. There's a group of Greek people who want to meet Jesus. It's Andrew who brings them to him. It kind of sounds like this guy Andrew would make for a pretty good fisher of men. But it's not just Peter and Andrew we meet here. We're also introduced to another well-known couple in the Gospels. And that would be James and John. Go down to verse 21. As going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. So Jesus calls Peter and Andrew. They follow, and they keep walking down the beach. They're going to the next stop, and they pull up to the Zebedee fishing company. Zebedee, the father, seems to have had a sizable fishing operation. There's other boats. There's other servants. This was the family trade. They seem to be successful at it. And if you know a thing or two about fishing, you can tell James and John were good fishermen. Because when we see them, what are they doing? They're mending their nets. And that's a good sign. Abraham Lincoln once famously said, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening my axe. And likewise, a good fisherman will spend just as much time tending to his nets because otherwise it's all for naught. But we don't care so much about their fishing operation. We want to know who are these two guys, James and John. We have another pair of brothers. James always comes first whenever we see him. James is mentioned first and it's always in connection to his brother John. These two guys just always went together. When there's James, there's John. When there's John, there's James. They go together so much so that Jesus gave them a shared nickname. You know, Simon becomes Peter, but James and John both are called the Sons of Thunder. Jesus renames them the Sons of Thunder. At first, it it sounds like a pretty awesome nickname, like the Sons of Thunder. But uh, I really do wonder if the Lord intended to humble them by it. It's kind of like when a group of friends start calling a guy Slugger and you think that oh, sounds like a, such a cool nickname. But the story behind that, he used to claim he could hit a baseball further than any one of them. But when the time finally came, they put him to the test. Not only did he miss the first pitch, but then he rolled his ankle so bad they he had to be in a, a walking boot for a month. So they start calling him Slugger. You realize it's actually not such a cool nickname. It's just reminding him of his shame. I kind of get that impression with James and John being called the sons of thunder because several times Jesus has to basically rebuke them for their lack of compassion, for their hot-headedness, for their arrogance. Because it was James and John who wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume an entire Samaritan village. (laughs) It was James and John who wanted to stop a guy from casting out demons in the name of Jesus just because he wasn't in their little circle. And it was James and John who tried to maneuver their way to sit at the right hand of Jesus and the left in the kingdom, just bypassing the other disciples, just get right up to the top. But the Lord would transform them as well. It's not bad to be strong-willed. It's only bad to be self-willed, where you use your strong will to serve yourself, But the Lord can greatly use strong-willed people who have yielded the direction of their will to him. In fact, we need such men who will hold the line, defend the faith, and not give in no matter what. Now, at first, James and John appear quite self-willed. But later, they would be giving over their lives to the Lord's will. The Lord will indeed use their strong will to help build his church. James goes first, like I said. And indeed, James was the first among the 12 to wear the martyr's crown. James would be the first martyr of the disciples. But John would go last because the Lord had different plans for John. John and Jesus shared a special kinship. John had a deep love for the Lord and it was returned John is often described as the disciple whom the Lord loved. And over the years, John would be softened and and softened down. His sharp edges would be removed such that by his later years, he would be known as the apostle of love. This once son of thunder would become the apostle of love. And he's the one constantly telling the church, reminding us how deeply we need to love one another. But if I can add one more thing here, perhaps the reason Jesus chose James and John is because they were related. Maybe you never knew this. There's a very, very good chance that James and John were cousins with Jesus. I'll give you the short version of this. You read Mark 1540. You learn that at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion, there was a woman named Salome. And you compare this to Matthew 27. 55 and 56, and you learn that Mary, or rather uh, Salome, was the mother of James and John. So, she's the wife of Zebedee. She's the mother of James and John, Salome, unless there's some other woman at the cross. Then you read John 19, 25, you learn that Salome was also the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, if you're following, you put that little family tree together, that would make, unless there's an additional unidentified woman at the foot of the cross, that's possible. But otherwise, it would mean that James and John were actually cousins with Jesus. This would actually explain why on the cross, Jesus entrusts the care of Mary, his mother, to John. They're related. Now, related or not, though, we don't know dogmatically, but these were the first four main disciples of Jesus, and they would be that inner circle. He's calling first just a group not of Pharisees, not of scribes, not of religious leaders, or even powerful men, just a group of fishermen. But speaking of that calling though, let's see number three, the call. Thirdly, the call straightforward. He just says to them, verse 19, follow me. Just two words, follow me. And with these words, he's, he's not just inviting them to a stroll on the beach. No, really, this is the call of a rabbi to his disciples. Jesus was an itinerant teacher, and it actually was not uncommon for a rabbi or teacher to gather a group of disciples around himself. Today, students go to a university to sit under many teachers, but back then, it's like the school kind of came to you. A single rabbi or teacher, master would, would gather around himself a group of disciples. They would follow him, imitate him, cling to his words, learn from him. The big difference is back then, rabbis never chose their disciples like this. It was more like school admissions today. You apply to all the top schools you want to go to, hoping to get in. Likewise, back then, disciples would basically apply to a rabbi they wanted to study under. And rabbis would then select the best students from the mix, the ones that would really make them look the best. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's finding men who were not seeking discipleship per se. He puts a sovereign call on their life. Their plans for their life didn't really matter because Jesus, the Lord, had bigger plans for them. He had determined to use them to help build his church. And when Jesus calls, you answer. Now, that being said, though, I want you to know we we need to be clear and honest about this passage so that you don't accidentally read into it more than than is really there. What I mean by that is you read this passage in Matthew, you might get the impression that Peter, Andrew, James, and John had never heard of Jesus before. It's like, here's this stranger. He comes up to them on the beach and says, follow me. And almost like they're caught in a trance, they just drop their nets and and just start following him. And that might make you marvel at the power of Jesus. Now listen, you should marvel at the power of Jesus. He certainly can issue a sovereign, effectual call. But just to be clear, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were already called by Jesus about a year earlier. He had already once called them to follow him. This is the second time. John chapter 1 tells us more about what happened in Christ's first year of ministry after his baptism. He goes back to where John the Baptist is ministering and he starts poaching John's disciples for himself. That's part of the plan. John has no problem with this. He must increase, I must de- decrease. That's how it goes. But it starts off with Andrew. Andrew was the first one to leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus. And most likely with Andrew was John Andrew then goes and finds his brother, Simon, and says, what? John one forty one. We found the Messiah. So Peter comes along. After that, Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. John one forty three. Philip then goes and, and finds Nathaniel. Jesus calls him too. So you can tell already, Jesus has made some disciples. He's already issued that call. Follow me. And what you have to do is just properly distinguish between the the different natures of Christ's calls, because he's called these disciples. He will end up calling them in different ways for different things about five times. There's about five different calls he places on these disciples. The first was with John the Baptist, and it was a call to identify him as the Messiah. It's the first fundamental call to, to recognize him as the Messiah. And after that, he set out on a short-term mission. Peter, Andrew, James, and John went with Jesus on a short-term mission. But when that was up, they went back to fishing. And that was fine. What we're witnessing here in Matthew 4 is the second call. It's about a year later. Which means when Jesus calls them, he's not a stranger. They, they know who he is. They've already followed him for a little while. They've seen a taste of his power. He's not done massive healing campaigns yet. But they've seen a taste of his power. Jesus has not yet called them to be permanent 24-7 disciples. i mean, like, these guys were ordinary men. They weren't the disciple to a rabbi type. That's not what they were trying to do. But here, Jesus comes back. He calls them a second time to follow him. This is likewise for a short-term mission. They're going to follow him on a a short Galilean tour. And then they're going to go back to fishing again. It's not until the third call, that's recorded in Luke chapter 5, where these men realize, and Christ makes clear, no more fishing. It's time to leave fishing behind for good. The master has much, much bigger plans for you. No more fishing. So shortly thereafter, after that uh, formal call in Luke chapter 5, then he calls the 12 and formalizes the call on the 12, such that thereafter they're known as the twelve. And then as a last call, he calls the 12 to himself and commissions them to go out and preach. Hopefully that, that clears up any miscommunications in your mind or keeps you from reading into the text what's not really there. What you need to get for now is in this text, when Jesus calls these fishermen, he has big plans in mind for them. Something bigger is going on here. They don't know it yet, but Jesus does. And true, this is not yet the end of their fishing career, but what we're seeing is Jesus, to, he's continuing to invest in these men and he's intentionally training them for their new vocation, which, which he knows about. And they'll gather because one day he's going to be gone. And his intention, whether they get it now or not, is to pass on the mantle to them of being full-time fishers of men. In fact, even in this calling, he already lets them know where he's taking them with this discipleship. You see that in the commission. Number four, the commission. He said to them, verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Some have called this image of fishers of men, a condensed parable. Jesus, he's not teaching here. He doesn't explain what he means by it. But he doesn't really have to. It's fairly obvious. Instead of spending all their their time and energy catching fish in a lake, Jesus wants them to be spending all their time and energy catching souls from the earth. It was not going to be enough for these disciples to know in their heart, Jesus was the Messiah. Like, isn't that nice? We found the Messiah. No, he was going to prepare them and then commission them to now, You've got to go tell other people. You have to go spread the news. They were to tell others the Messiah had come. Back in Jeremiah 16, verse 16, God used the image of fishermen. Speaking of how he would fish for his people who were in exile and bring them back to the land of blessing. And similarly here, the Lord is looking for spiritual fishermen who will blanket the earth. With the net of the gospel, in hopes that some might be captured but then freed from the domain of darkness. And that strategy is starting here with the four and then the twelve. And really, it's in these first disciples that we see the Lord's master plan for reaching the world with his gospel, his good news. He could have done it any number of ways right? He could have stayed on earth for a couple hundred years and just visited every tribe and tongue personally, if he really wanted to. Or he could have just announced the gospel from the heavens with a megaphone to all the nations. He could have done this many ways, but he chose and determined in his sovereignty to use ordinary men and women, disciples, called to be fishers of men. They would be the ones to take the good news of his death and resurrection to all the nations. And this explains, as we'll see later in Matthew, that why Jesus is not that concerned about the crowds. Yes, he he will preach to the crowds. He will heal them and feed them out of compassion because he he does care for them. It's just that he knew the crowds were fickle. I mean, they they followed just because they wanted more free bread. We learn in John chapter 6. They were not truly devoted to him and, and Jesus could have attracted a, a mega crowd. But then once he left, they, they're not going to carry on his work. The free bread's over, the show's over, they're, they're just going to leave. Now, Jesus knew that if he heavily invested in a small group of men, teaching them and training them, he could enable this, this movement, this salvation to, to carry on long after he was gone. If he could teach his disciples to be the ones to make more disciples, who themselves would make more disciples, he'd get this whole movement to self-propagate. And that's what he was doing. Now, you drive here in the spring, you see California poppies all over the place. Everywhere you see California poppies. And one of the reasons we we see them is because, like, all plants are self-propagating and they do so well in this climate. But no one has to plant them. You just have one plant that grows to maturity, it flowers, sends out its seed, the wind picks it up, falls on good soil, and it just reproduces itself, and it spreads everywhere, places you wouldn't think to plant a flower. Well, Jesus here is making sure that these first few disciples were, were real. They had to be real. They had to be the real deal. They needed to form deep roots and strong branches that they might mature and grow So that by the time Jesus is gone, they're they're the ones sending out the seed of the gospel. The Holy Spirit will ensure some of that seed will fall on good soil. But it was the Lord's plan to always to use disciples to carry on the work of spreading his good news around the globe and building his church. I want to add on that and reflect on that. But first, let's go ahead and, and add one more. Number five, the response. Fifthly here, the response. You see in verse 20, after he calls them, it says, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Same thing with James and John, verse 22. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, this response may not be quite as dramatic as you pictured, as if Jesus was a complete stranger to them. Nevertheless, the response of the disciples to Christ's call was one of of total surrender to his will. Master is called, end of story. And this was the right response. Immediately, it says twice, without question, without hesitation, without debate, without compromise, without worrying about their equipment or their business or their relatives, the disciples responded to Christ's call and they followed him. Whatever the purpose of that call was, they didn't fully know, but okay, off we go. It's just like Jesus would say later in Luke nine sixty two: no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is worthy of the kingdom of God. They understood that the master was summoning them for another round of service, at the very least, and so they answered the call. And the Lord would continue to squeeze more and more out of their lives for himself, for his kingdom and his glory. And that's the cost of all true discipleship. And to follow Jesus inherently means to deny self, but that's the mark of a true disciple and to such belong the kingdom of God. Now, this is just the beginning. As Matthew's gospel goes on, we will learn a lot more about the nature of, of true discipleship from the successes and really mostly from the failures of these these first few disciples. But for now, I, I think it's worth reflecting on this call to follow Jesus, because while the earthly circumstances are quite different, this is still the demand Jesus places on all of his followers, this call to follow me. That's still the call. We were calling people to follow him. That hasn't changed. But do you know what that actually means? Truly. And so I want to finish our time with a bit of a meditation. I guess you could call it number six, our response. How, how do we respond when we think of Christ and the call he places on his disciples? Thinking about the call of the master in this text, I want us to consider just this, this prompt, what it means to follow Jesus. What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? And this needs to be crystal clear in your mind. I imagine most, if not all of you, make a claim that you follow Jesus. Do you know what you're claiming? Do you know what Jesus means by that? And this call to follow him is not just for the 12. It's a call for all disciples, everyone who's going to take his name and call themselves Christian is claiming to follow this call. Jesus later makes it clear. This is a universal call. I mentioned Matthew 16 and verse 24, right after Peter confesses him as the Christ and the son of the living God, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We'll save that for Matthew 16, but he's already making clear a few things. To follow him, it's not a simple thing. If you want to come after him, you're going to have to deny yourself first. Just think about the word follow. Inherent in that notion is a forsaking. To follow Jesus, to go after him. You must first, obviously, leave behind that which you used to follow. I mean, you can't go in two directions at the same time to follow Jesus on the way of righteousness. You have to first forsake the way of unrighteousness. You must abandon the path you are on. This is why, as we learned a few weeks ago, Jesus, he's always preaching repentance. It's all step one, turning away from the course of sin and self, which you were on. I mean, you can say that you follow Jesus all you want. A lot of people do. But if you're clinging to your sin still, if you're living in sin without repentance, you're not a disciple. You have to get that pursuing a course of sin and self. That's what got you into trouble with God in the first place. And the whole reason you were cut off from God and sitting under his judgment was because you, like all humanity, exchanged the truth of God God and the glory of God for a lie. You made yourself the God of your world. But you and I make for very poor, weak gods. And the one true God reserves wrath for all such idolaters. And it's pretty a marvel of his grace that he sent his son, Jesus, to redeem us in the first place. Like Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord knew he was redeeming rebels. But that is our problem. Jesus paid the full penalty of our sins on the cross. He rose from the dead. That we might be freely forgiven. And justified. And reconciled. And you receive that amazing gift. By faith in him alone. But you do know that the other side of the coin of faith. Is repentance. You have to forsake. Turn away from sin. To follow Jesus. But I. Also, want you to understand that following Jesus goes goes much deeper than that. We know that on the surface, some see Christianity as a religion of rules. Like, hey, so you want to follow Jesus? All right, well, you're going to have to stop drinking, stop swearing, stop sleeping around, stop doing drugs. You know, straighten up, straighten up your image, toe the line. And yes, while it's true, you do need to repent and and put away your sin. If that's how you you approach following Jesus, you're you're missing something much deeper. What is sin? I think you can say all sin can be boiled down to this. My will be done. And I don't care what God's will has to say about it. My will be done. I, I don't care who gets hurt. My will be done, period. At the heart of all sin is this rebellion against God as God as the Lord, as the sovereign, the one with the right to direct our lives. We have dethroned God in our heart. We, we don't want his will to be done. We, we hate his will. We want what we want. And when we want what we want, it doesn't matter what God wants or what anyone else wants. If they get in our way, too bad. Our will be done. So you could have someone who, who comes to believe in Jesus, or he says he believes in Jesus for many reasons. He stops drinking and smoking, doing drugs, sleeping around on the surface. Now he looks like a nice, clean cut Christian, but in all these different areas of life, like finances, marriage, parenting, career, hobbies, you name it. He's still living by this rule in his heart. My will be done. Yeah, there may have been enough social pressure or religious guilt to get him to, to knock off these big egregious sins, but in his heart, he still has not fully yielded his will to Christ and he's not denied self. And that means he's not following Christ. It means he, he can't follow Christ. And look, the same applies to someone raised in the church who never went wild and crazy. They, they've always looked nice and shiny. But in their heart of hearts, they've never yielded their will to Christ as their sovereign. And I fear and worry about many who call themselves Christians, but might be in for a rude awakening on the day of judgment. Whereas we will see shortly in Matthew 7, Jesus says there's not a few, but many who call him Lord, but are cast away from him in the end. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It's not just about abandoning some taboo surface sins. It's much more fundamental. You're abandoning you. You're abandoning self. You're abandoning self-will to be more exact. Not strong will. You keep your strong will. Lord can use strong will, but you must abandon self-will where no longer is it my will be done. But rather you, you pray and you really believe no, God's will be done. It's where you come to see your sin for what it is. You see your sin. You see your will. You see what it got you when you got your way. You see all all the suffering and the hurt and the depravity that results when you get what you want. That's outside of God's plan. And you realize, no, God's will is actually good. It's actually better. It's righteous. In fact, God even designed it such that when we are living in his will, we're actually the most blessed, we're the most happy, we're the most pleased, we're the most delighted. He programmed true peace and joy in his will. It's not found outside of his will. This is the paradox of discipleship. Our greatest self-fulfillment comes in denying self. How can that be? Only his way. Jesus came that we might have life and life to the fullest. If you want that life, all you have to do is die. You die to self and he grants you life. Like he said, Matthew 16, 25, right after whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So to follow Jesus, you must abandon self. Now, does this mean that to follow Jesus, you've got to leave your job? Like Peter and Andrew doesn't mean you have to leave your family. Like James and John, you have to sell your possessions. No, but it might. See, you're submitting your will to his will, whatever that is. That means if it ever somehow becomes clear that your will or your plans or some part of your life is against his will. Well, then the disciple would be ready and willing to forsake that as well. I an old church in Burbank when I was a college pastor. There was a young adult who wanted to be an actor. There's so a ton of them in, in that church. And he got a role, but it required homosexual involvement. He didn't want to do it, but he knew his future career was pretty much at stake here if he didn't take the role. And that's called a test of discipleship. And what matters more, your will, your desires, or God's? Are you going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness or your Worldly success. The true disciple will follow Jesus, and that means they're ready to abandon anything that no longer accords with his will. You know, when it comes down to it, this call to follow Jesus with reckless abandon sounds crazy. I mean, who would give away their life like this? Walking around town, a random stranger comes up to you and says, Hey, I want you to leave your family, leave your job. Leave your possessions and then come follow me for the rest of your life. I hope you would quickly run away from that person. I mean, that is crazy. You would never do that. Even if you knew this person, no one's worth that much devotion. You see, the difference is Jesus is not an ordinary person. He's God come down. He's the creator, the savior, the redeemer. He's come to both deliver us from judgment and give us joy. You do notice in these calls, Jesus is not saying, follow the stars, follow your heart. He doesn't even say, follow my teaching, follow my example. Although that's part of it. He says, just follow me, follow me. Jesus is the second part of this equation. It's follow me. And truly following him only works when you know him. You will only get discipleship right when you get Jesus right when you see him for who he is you behold him as the sinless savior come down that's when you you realize no actually he is worth my whole life he's worth all of my life's devotion it's just like Jesus later taught in Matthew Matthew 13 45 and 46 he said the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and upon finding One pearl of great value. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. And Jesus is that pearl of great price. He himself is the treasure. And you you have to see that. You have to see that and believe that to be saved and to make any sense of this call, follow me. Otherwise, it won't make sense to you. Won't be worth it. Why would you do that? You need to count the cost of discipleship, of course. But you also need to count the cost of non-discipleship. Consider the cost of staying in your sin and rebellion. You may live it up for a short while, but if you haven't already, you're going to taste some of the suffering and emptiness it brings. And if you don't repent, that suffering will spring eternal. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Loses his soul. No, but rather choose life today. Choose Christ today. When Jesus calls here and and today as the gospel goes out, he's not begging for our lives as if he needs us. He doesn't need us. He does not need to be accepted by you. I hope you realize that it's the opposite. He's demanding our lives. He made them. And it's you and I who utterly and desperately need him. We are the needy party. We are the ones who desperately need to be accepted by him. It's only by his grace that he even issues such calls and gives us any time to repent and believe in him. It's only amazing that anyone is shown this mercy. You're hearing a message of that mercy today. Don't waste it. Turn to Jesus by faith and follow him. And then let let yourself be given over to increasing levels of devotion to him, like the disciples. Give yourself over to increasing levels of devotion to him. Let the Lord squeeze more and more out of your life, such that you're devoting more of your time and your energy to seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And, And the greater you come to treasure him, the more it's going to lead you to to step out on a limb and do what for many of you is is the scariest thing to do, and that's tell other people about him. Our time is nearly up, so we're going to save some reflections on being fishers of men for next time. But already you must know that one of his main goals in calling people is to turn them around and make them those who issue such a call, who, who partake in his divine work of calling to be fishers of men. This must become a growing passion in our lives. These disciples turned apostles needed to learn that lesson. After Jesus died on the cross, they were all shell-shocked. They didn't understand. Then Jesus rose and they were overjoyed, but they were still bewildered because Jesus appeared and then he left. And so they're still left wondering, like, this is amazing, but what does this mean? What's going on? What are we to do? But they finally get some marching orders They're told to go back to Galilee and the master will meet them there. And so off they go. John 21 tells us about this. Peter, James, John, some others, they're there. They're by the Sea of Galilee. They're most likely right here on the same shore of Capernaum. And they're waiting around. Okay, we made it to Galilee. They don't know what to do next. So what do they do? They go fishing. John 21, 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. They pulled a fishing all nighter, like sundown to sun up a fishing all nighter. And the Lord frustrated their catch. They caught nothing. It's happened to me a, a few times. <laughs> but verse four says, when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right hand side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. After this, they realized it was the Lord. This is when Peter jumps in. He just swims ashore. The rest row the boat in. The risen Lord has come to them again. They sit with him. They break bread with him once more. But then later, Jesus speaks to Peter. Verse 15. says: So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. Now, Peter was especially shell-shocked because although he's overjoyed, the Lord has risen. He's still dealing with the, the guilt that he was the one who vehemently denied even knowing the Lord three times. He's still living with that. And the Lord is gracious. He's going to hereafter restore him three times. But in so doing, Jesus also sets Peter's eyes on what's ahead when he says, Simon, do you love me more than these? That text can actually go either way, but I believe he's not talking about the disciples, but the fish. Do you love me more than these fish? Meaning they just caught a mother load of fish. This was a fisherman's dream. But it's like Jesus is challenging him here as if he's saying like, what's it going to be? Do you want to go back to this? Do you want to return to your old life? Do you want to go back to fishing? It can be good. But are you, or are you still sold out to me and my will? Jesus knew the answer. Peter knew the answer, but it needed to be said. And so he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter didn't want to return to his old ways. He really was ready to, to fully give himself over to the Lord and his work and his will. There's more here, but that, that's a fitting final word for us. Because there might be some of you who like Peter. And you feel you have failed your Lord in your discipleship in many ways. And guess what? You have. And so have I. We all have. Who fully, perfectly lives for his will? We are still sinners. But the Lord, you need to know, is is so gracious with those whom he loves and those whom love him. Who truly love him. He's not against us anymore. He's for us, for those who know him and have been called by his name. And so go back to him, return to him, share your heart with him, exalt him in your love for him. And let that renewed love for the Savior draw out from you a renewed commitment to live for him and to serve him and even share him with others, tell other people about him. Let the things of this world and the pursuits of this world grow strangely dim as your life is just more consumed with seeing not my will be done, but his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's make that our prayer together. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, that that is our, our prayer, our corporate prayer, and I pray it's true in the hearts of all who are here that hallowed be your name, and we seek Now your will to be done here on earth, not ours. We see the trouble our own will apart from you has gotten us into. We see our sin and its effects both in this life and the life to come. We see your just and holy judgment toward it. You're our righteous God, but we thank you for your love and mercy that you sent first a Savior to to call us, to to pay for our sins, to redeem us. And then your double mercy to call us to yourself, even to, to press us into service as disciples. This is all to your glory and to our good. Christ really is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And through him, Lord, we we come to know the way, the truth, and the life and enjoy it. Thank you for the the marvel of of your grace found in Christ. And I I pray you spur us on to greater discipleship. We all fall short in many ways, but may we be renewed in, in our heart for him, our love for him. And therefore the desire to forsake our will and to follow to live more of our lives for his kingdom, not for our little kingdoms on earth, but for his. Purify the zeal of your people this morning, that we are those who are living for you. We know you will use such people. To let the light shine to be fishers of men to transform this world. And we pray, until then, your will be done. In Christ's name we pray, amen.